What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. My name is Rich Kleiman, and with me, as always, Mr. Gianni Harrell. Gianni, what's good? What's up? What's up, bro? I'm just chilling, man. Um, Big show today. Big show today. And uh, it's not because my birthday's in a few days. It's not because I had a party at Zero Bond on Saturday. And it's not because my favorite holiday, Thanksgiving, is coming up. But it is because, with me today, my beautiful eight-year-old daughter, Miss Olivia Jade Kleiman. Olivia, how are you today? Good. How are you? I am well, thank you. And thank you for joining this podcast. I just made you watch the Grammy nominations. Was boring? Entertaining? What do you think? So boring. It was boring, right? Nobody that you were rooting for? Nope. Olivia Rodrigo? Never. J. Cole, my man? Sure, I guess. So J. Cole's somebody I used to work with. You know, I used to be a music manager. Yeah. Do you know any of the artists I used to manage? Yes, I know three of them. Who are they? Mark Ronson, Wale, and Meek Mill. And Meek Millie, that's right. Meek Millie, that's what I call him. And Solange Knowles, you ever heard of Solange? Nope. You've met her, though. I promise you, you've met her. Um, is that, um, what's her name? Exactly. It's what's her name. No, it's my, it's my homie, Solange Knowles. What's her name, sisters? Oh, Beyonce's sister. That is right. Good call. Good call on that one. So, the Grammys, um, I don't even know who I'm rooting for. I don't know who's up for what and who qualifies for what. I know J. Cole got quite a bit. Uh, of nominations there's one song where he samples the theme song to a show i worked on once called the life where it was my life is all i have that's it nothing my pop my pen my past that was from the esp my pen my pad yeah my pad that's exactly right this was the intro to this espn show that i worked on I don't know what that was, but I haven't heard much about it. It was written by Farrell Monch, and the song was rapped by Styles P, but Cole and 21 Savage made it a smash. And it got nominated? It just got nominated for Best Rap Song. So, Gianni, Saturday night was pretty epic. It was super tight. Gianni threw me a birthday party. I turned 45 this Saturday, 27th, but Gianni uh, and the... Good friends at Zero Bond put together a pretty special party. Were you there, Livy? No, and you're not that old. You're saying, I just turned 45. Your birthday's in four days. So that makes me 44 still. Only when you're a little kid do you really still think about, like, you're only 44 still. I'm 45, baby. Not yet. How old are you? Eight. Eight years old. You have kids, G? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. No, you don't have kids. But you, you, uh, you definitely brought the energy and the vibe Saturday. I really felt the love in the room, Brody. Great, bro. I, that was the goal, man. I, was, I had one thing on my mind. Make sure Rich had fun. Make sure that love is in the air. And it was. There was an incredible Ace Rothstein cake made after my favorite character in a movie ever mr ace rothstein shout out will casino. marcus scott sartiano shout out will marcus scott sartiano who else we shout now britney flint britney flint stephanie o'brien eric lapoe who dj what was the other dj's name mm, ah, well, listen bro that's not cool but 
you killed it, my brother. You killed it. And um, the whole staff is zero bond. Really yeah. special night. Yes, Olivia. Is that why you call yourself Ace Climbing on Instagram? Yeah, why? You don't like it? Uh, it's not the best, I would say. Okay, well, I like it. <laughs> it's a weird name. It's not even your name, so why would you say that? Well, your name's not Livy. It's actually Olivia. Yeah, but that sounds something like it. That's true. You know what an alter ego is, Livy? Nope. An alter ego is when somebody has two personalities, pretty much. Oh, I know what that is. I know a, a sign that has two personalities. And one of the signs lives with me. Gemini? Mm-hmm. Who's a Gemini? My sister, Bella. Does she have two personalities? Yes. <laughs> Yo, um, you know what I was going to say? Wait, what was I just going to say, Libby? Um, oh, you know who our guest is today? Who? Damon John. You know who that is? No. Yes, you do. What show do we love watching with the people sitting on the panel? And Shark Tank. Yes, Damon John is a guest on Shark Tank. And gee, we had a good combo with him. I fucking love Shark Tank. Oh, sorry, Libby. I freaking wow. love Wow, cursing in front oh of the eight-year-old. <laughs> oops. <laughs> <laughs> Libby, oops. Damon John is a legend. So beyond Shark Tank, Libby, he created the biggest and basically the first clothing line that embodied hip-hop, music, and culture. Not the first clothing brand in the whole entire world, just to say. No, not the first clothing line in the whole world, but the first that I can remember. This and like, what else? Cross Colors was a store. Benetton, I guess. Um, is he the person who Shark Tank? Is he the mean one? No, no, that's Mr. Wonderful. But Benetton was more like <laughs> United Colors of Benetton. FUBU was, FUBU was the real deal. FUBU was the real deal. That, that was those velour tracksuits. Did you rock velour tracksuits? Were you, you, I mean, but I never forget. Johnny's 26. I talked to him like he's 46. You probably <laughs> like, had a velour tracksuit. It's like tracksuit. I was there. Yeah, I had a velour sweatsuit when I was Livy's age, and it was Sean John. Ooh. I wasn't saying, like, he's mean. It's like, because the people who invest think he's mean. Yeah, but that's Mr. Wonderful. We didn't talk to Mr. Wonderful today. We talked to Damon John. Yeah, but Mr. Wonderful, like, if he, if you want to listen to this, I'm not saying you're mean, but it's just like, I feel like people think you're not nice, not nice but you never can prove if you see you, if we see you out of Shark Tank, so. That's really true. That's a fact. That's facts. That Mr. Wonderful, if you're listening, Mr. Wonderful, if you're listening, my daughter says you may be a good person in real life, but what we see on the show and what these investors see, it's not that wonderful. Do you think, G? Um, I think he's wonderful when you get a deal. Yeah. And is. then you'll be like, ah, right, he's wonderful. Unless you get one of his royalty I'm going to keep it real. I don't want to, listen, I don't want any beef with Lori. I think she's incredibly smart and I think she's beautiful and I think she is a incredibly good businesswoman. But like QVC, like, <laughs> I feel like sometimes like can't just flip everything on QVC, <laughs> can you? That's definitely her selling point. But you know, they all, it's amazing because Lori's like a branding product expert and then but all of them have real real like relationships with all the big box stores which is also what she promotes so 
I mean, if I had a product that needed to work, I would definitely take a deal with Lori. No, she's dope. I, I'm not knocking her. I'm just saying, like, she says QVC sometimes too quick, and I'm like, yo, you don't even need to say that. Like, <laughs> I mean, who are you talking about, Lori? Yeah. Uh, she, I feel like when people try to invest in companies, she'll, like, have to take, like, not an hour, but a long time to think about it. And then, like, when they try out the products, they're like, after, like, using it, I was thinking, like, mm, no. But if, like, your price, well, what is it, like, what is it called again? Like your, your valuation. Your, your value, va- valuation is too high. too high, or let's say too expensive for them. They will say no. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. If the value, everybody, if you're listening, it doesn't matter what age you are. If your valuation's too high and it's too expensive, they're going to say no. Right? Right. The energy is so big. um, And I think Lori's got great energy. Mr. Wonderful, Olivia, I think you said it all. Damon's energy is epic. Mark Cuban is just like the God MC. Oh my God, the God MC. Mark Cuban. I'm rocking with that. The God MC. Mr. Wonderful is probably wonderful. You never know. You never know. Well, you know what? Let's find out from Damon John how wonderful he is, my friend. And Olivia, this may be the best intro we've ever done. We'll see after we see it. We'll see after we see it. Gianni, my brother, let's get into it. Let's do it. Thank you. Livy. Damon, how are you? I am great. Thank you for uh, the great intro. I'm happy to be here, brother. I'm excited to talk to you. Gianni and I were talking a little bit earlier, and we we realized as much as we could ask you Shark Tank questions from now until tomorrow, probably, we will wait till a little bit later in the interview, because how you got to Shark Tank is way more fascinating to me and to Gianni, and thinking about just the impact that you had in general on the state of hip hop and the world that we live in today. So you grew up as the only child with your mom in New York. And was the entrepreneurial gene and spirit in you from the beginning, was it something you identified and could tell that was driving you as a kid? Yeah, it was. Um, I wouldn't call it entrepreneurial at the time. I mean, you know, it was just a, you know, some form of a hustle or some form of ways to make extra money or make money, not even extra because I didn't have any. Um, because uh, when my parents got divorced around age of 10, I never saw I spoke to my father again. And my mother had to start working three jobs. So I never wanted her to be, um, you know, responsible for the sneakers I wanted or the clothes I wanted. So, um, of course, she would help me here and there by me doing my chores. But other than that, it was only it was up to me. So I had to shovel snow or rake leaves or do whatever I had to do starting at 10 years old. And it was it was for survival. But did you feel like when you were hustling and that you were thinking of ways to generate money that you were at like a place that was natural for you? It came natural to me. I didn't I didn't understand why other kids weren't doing it. So I'll give you an example. You know, when when, you know, snow, snow would hit, you know, all the kids would shovel snow. Right. So I would go into the little bit more wealthier neighborhood that was about a mile away um, and I would shovel snow. But I knew that, you know, you still had to commute to the Manhattan. So I would I would you know, I would make sure I got there early enough to get everybody's snow shoveled. 
But I would say to them whenever the snow comes that I would shovel for five or eight dollars because they're going to be in the city. And if they come home, it's going to be super icy. So then I would go and get kids to shovel it at half the price so I can now get 30 you know, driveways uh, instead of, you know, 15. And I knew the kids couldn't poach me because the people weren't home. So they would leave the money in the mailbox. So I basically was trying to scale my business in that sense. And I just didn't understand why other kids would work for me or not try to do it themselves because there's obviously way more and many houses they can do that. But I, I, I never comprehended that. Well, it's, it's obvious from that. And I've said this all along, like being an entrepreneur is, is not a job that you can apply for. It's definitely a mindset and a skill set that I think we're all wired for, whether you harness that or not, um, you're wired for it. And obviously the environment you were growing up in and the fact that your parents split and that you had to provide probably brought that out of you earlier. But it also happened with the backdrop of hip hop and just the amount of kind of talent, not only coming out of Hollis, Queens, but just the entire um, art form kind of coming to front and center. Was it something that you remember connect with, connecting with early? Was it something that was just right in front of you where you grew up? Um, and like the whole speed of hip hop and seeing these kind of like young entrepreneurs coming out of that art form. Was it something that you really just gravitated towards before you started in your first venture? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, it was the fact that, um, you know, we lived in Hollis and, you know, for those who aren't aware on uh, that small area, you know, came LL Cool J, Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, Tribe Called Quest, 50 Cents, Ja Rule, uh, Lost Boys, uh, Onyx and so many people. Right. Um, uh, it was that, you know, we I my first experience of it was I was break dancing and I wanted to go on tour. And the guy that, you know, in the run DMC track said, Larry put me inside the Cadillac. He got me a, uh, he got me a, uh, an audition to, to go on tour for a, a group named Houdini. And I actually made, made it through the audition. And then my mother said, you ain't going on tour. And some kid out of, uh, some kid out of Atlanta named Jermaine Dupree took my place uh, when I was 14 years old. And I, I still regret that till today. But um, right around 15, 16, when, the, when, the, when they first started going to the largest rap tour at the time, it was Fat Boys, LL Cool J, Run DMC, Rakim, Public Enemy. I was pushing speakers on the tour. I was just going around and hanging out. When they would be in Troy, New York, I can easily drive up to Troy, New York, or Philadelphia, I could take a, a bus. And it was me and three other friends and all of us promised and we all we didn't necessarily all know how to rap, but we all said, man, we're going to make it somewhere in hip hop. One of my buddies said, I'm going to be a big director. The other buddy said, I'm going to be a, um, I'm going to be a, a, a music producer. My other buddy said, I'm going to I don't care about that. I'm going to sell drugs. And this is we were all 15 years old. That's me, Hype Williams, Irv Gotti. And then Hype would make the movie Belly about our buddy who said he's going to go to he's going to be the biggest drug dealer who just got out last year after 26 years. So um, it was in our blood. It was something that we just wanted to do. That's incredible, man. That's an amazing story. Um, and like was fashion something that you did you have this rep as like a fly dress kid in Hollis? Was it something that you were like, well, OK, this clear. I'm going this way. Like Hype's going to do this. Irv's going to do this. Was it known like Damon's going to get into fashion or was this something that you saw a void in? No, I was just fashionable. I didn't know I was going to get. So my, my love for fashion really started out at nine or 10 years old. And I didn't really discover that I can actually make money doing it until I was 20. But yeah, listen, on a, on a Friday night, you know, you didn't hear any kind of music. You didn't hear rap music uh, on the regular station at any given time. 
You heard it on Friday night when Mr. Magic came on between 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock. And I couldn't go out at 10 or 11 years old. So what would I do? Friday nights and Saturday nights, I would wait till that came on and I would checkerboard my, my laces. I, well, first of all, I had to buy them skinny and I had to soak them and, and do this. And then I would, of course, you know, uh, my Timberlands or my, my Pumas, I only had two pair. I had to re-dye them every week so the girls would think I had a new pair every week. Um, and I would put the permanent creases on the sewing machines in my, in my, in my pants. Um, and you know, and curtail the bottom of the leg so that when I was doing windmills, they wouldn't, my, my, the, the bottom of my legs wouldn't hit. So I spent all every, I, for, for three years, I spent every Friday night, Saturday night for two hours, um, working on my fashion as I was waiting for the real Roxanne to come on or the new, or the new, uh, you know, the new, uh, you know, UTFO song to come out. Yeah. So you were fly, you were that guy. And did people know you? Like, were you in the mix as you started to get older in the scene? I wasn't super fly, but I was fly enough to be competitive with the other kids, you know, I'll yeah. go and get the shirts, you know, get our, our names pressed. Well, you know, those shirts, those times you used to go down to someplace called Mr. Lee and you had to, everything was pressed on the shirt. It was like a, it was like a card. It was like your name, your address, Pisces, you know, every, everything, every number you had, could be pre you, you hot pressed that on the shirt. You need to know everything about me. That's dope, man. And, did, like was the was the whole energy of it because you know for me I I'm I'm 44 now and I was obsessed with the world of sports until I really started to see what was happening in hip hop in the early 90s and all of a sudden as much as I obsessed over sports the kind of star power that I saw from these guys in music videos from the ones run, owning the labels and running the labels felt like the way I felt when I saw like a star athlete when I was a kid. Was there something about being known in that culture that was important to you? Because you got famous from your business, but was a part of you like, let me lace these shoes up, crease these pants, right? Like, I see the way the rappers are getting love. I want, I want part of this. Well, you know, it's a, it's a combination because what happens right around, like, like in everybody's neighborhood, 84 to 86, crack started to hit the streets. And we didn't get to see on TV the heroes of, of the world, you know, we were African-American and we didn't get to see the normal heroes in our community were getting up at five o'clock in the morning, going to work and they were coming home at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and we didn't see the heroes and all we saw was Supreme Team and Fat Cat and Callie and all these people driving by and, you know, in, in fancy cars and they were inducting a lot of my friends into that world. Um, I started to see that there was another way to get out by seeing LL and all these guys and all their bodyguards and all their friends in our neighborhood going, we're not going to do that. We're going to do that. And that's when they became superstars, you know, um, and of course, Doc, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and all these people, we would see these and hear these stories, you know what I mean? And, and see them, especially when the biggest superstar was Ralph McDaniels in our neighborhood who came on with Video Music Box and we'd race home to see it. And that would be our version of CNN whether he had fat fashion going on or whether he was playing aha or whether he was playing whoever it was, that's where we were getting our information. We were saying, wow, why can't we be like that? But I was close enough to go on these tours and actually see it in real life. This wasn't something that was unattainable. And that's why it became something that these people were bigger than life. Because then I started seeing LL with a brand new Audi or all this stuff. And I was like, you can actually make money doing something you love. And then it's, tell me like you've, you've, found what your role is going to be in this amongst your friends. What's step one and what's the original mission statement for FUBU? Well, the mission, the, the original, so, so it's, it's two part, right? Um, you know, I, I, 
I remember hearing that nobody wanted us to wear their clothes, whether it's Tommy Hilfiger or Ralph Lauren. And I'm not saying that they honestly said that. I don't know that. If, uh, there's no fact backing that up. But there was, Timbaland had said in the New York Times, we don't make or sell our boots to drug dealers. Now, if you live in Northeast, man, we were Timbaland where we were in Speedos. We don't care. We went in Timbaland all day because it wasn't because of his technical sense, but it took, a, it took the great, a great die. You know what I mean? And so we wore that. And I got frustrated and I said, who's ever going to respect and love and value who buys their clothes? Now, a lot of people think FUBU started off as a company only for blacks, but it wasn't because then I'd be I'd be guilty of the same bigotry that Timberland had. Right. I, 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 I dressed third base. I dressed Beastie Boys. I didn't care. I, I thought Beastie Boys were crazier than anybody I ever knew. Right. So um, that's what first started off uh, as I'm going to create FUBU. But truth be told, the reason after that that I kept continuing the business is because I was able to get on the video sets and talk to the video chicks because I had the shirts. And I was like, yo, you can't kick me off. I'm here to dress the artists. They were like, the artists don't even know you here. I'm like, nah, nah, they, they, they want me. Hey, listen, anything we do is, is, is for women at the end of the day. So before I know it, they were kicking everybody else off the set, off the Wu-Tang set or whatever, and I got to stay. And then the artists started wearing my clothes, and I was like, wait a minute, this is a double win. So, I mean, I know you didn't want to say it, but I think it was pretty clear, like those clothing lines, Jabot, Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, it, it seemed like that was the overarching sentiment. Like we didn't yeah. make this clothing for hip hop. Um, and there was always like this alternative that I saw in the city. There was cross colors up on like 94th and Amsterdam. Benetton had like one foot in at times. It felt like with, with hip hop, but it wasn't till... FUBU and LL, that it felt like to a layman, here was a uniform and a clothing line now that was embodying what was happening in hip hop. Did you feel like you got, as you grew a bit, that same reception from within, from your peers? Yeah, so it really went that, like you said, Benetton, Lecoq Sportif, Alessé, you know, a lot of these a lot of these other brands, uh, Sergio Ticini and all that type of stuff, they never had a, you know, we, we borrowed them and we reinterpreted them for the streets. But um, it was really cross colors and cross color pop for one year. And the theory in, 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 in prior to that to support African-American fashion was you had to wear kente cloth. And I got no problem with kente cloth. I love it. Right. But I didn't want to wear orange jeans. I didn't want to wear purple jeans. I, di I didn't want to have to wear that. And cross colors really kicked the door open for all of us. They had a lot of shops with merry-go-round. They had all their product and merry-go-round and merry-go-round happened to go out of business, which then affected all of their business. It wasn't the fact that cross colors was not and is not a viable brand, but they had the eggs in one basket. Ben Calk and I came out and walk away. And those are the ones who, who really, started to inspire me um, from walk away and call. And then we came out with football came out at the same time, but we were doing really low numbers. And so I got to say the call tonight, I think was the first real kind of uniform in that sense. And then we, we obviously then, um, you know, started getting to the market and then we, 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 we mushroomed and that's, yeah. that's why people, Think of us, you know, but but we came up at the same time with Shabazz Brothers and Walk Aware, Call Kanai, 40 Acres of the Mule, and, and even Russell was doing Fat Farm still. Yeah, and Merry Go Round, that was the name of the store. That was on 94th and Broadway, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and was it, did you think you had relationships that gave you a little bit of a leg up? Like it felt, again, from a casual that the LL 
relationship with FUBU was very connected and that there was a lot of support internally, which, and Carl Kanai was definitely very top of mind around that time, but it felt like it was totally unique in how you guys entered the market. And a lot of it had to do with that, like feeling that these people were wearing it on video sets authentically. 100% because you got Ralph McDaniel saying, whenever I come on a set, I can, I can, I can hook somebody up. You got LL wearing it. You got hype shooting the videos. You got Onyx. Fredro was my barber for a long period of time. And then when he blew up, he put it on, right? Uh, ODB showed up in my house one day and man, and, and you know, I had only sold like 20 shirts and I got old dirty basses, you know, and crazy Sam standing in my, my living room and now, now ODB's wearing in a Mariah Carey video. So there was this authenticity because, you know, we were part of it. You know, we would, we would be at the tunnel or we would be at, you know, all these places and, and have, hey, listen, Funkmaster Flex was carrying crates for Chuck Chill out at the time. So, you know, we grew up, we 100% grew up there and we, and, and, and people came up with us. You know what I mean? was that process of like of scaling from like that tipping point where you're just getting notoriety all the hot people are wearing your stuff to making millions of units and SKUs? well the story goes that i started in 89 and i closed it down three times um from 89 to 92. uh right around 92 if you look at their environment there's a great documentary out la 92. 92 looked exactly like uh last year you know 92 was uh people were burning uh, marching in the streets. Uh, William Barr was in the White House and black men were being choked to death and killed, uh, Rodney King and various other things. And there was a frustration that made me say, even though I'm going to close it down, I'm going to reopen this thing up because we need to we need to empower our community and our people and everybody needs to see the beautiful side of hip hop. Now, from 92 from, to 96, 97, all I did was place product, place product, place product, go to as many shows as I could. Right around 96 is when um, Samsung's textile division called uh, after I had went, basically blew all my money and I put an ad in the paper, said million dollars in order needs financing. And they called and said, we'll manufacture and distribute your clothes for three years. You got, but you got you to gotta do $5 million worth of uh, sales in three years. But because we had seeded everything from 89 to 96, we did $30 million worth of, of sales in three months. And that's, that's when the mushroom hit. And so, but 96 also seemed to be where you would flip through XXL and every page was now Carl Kanai, Maurice Malone, FUBU, Fat Farm, um, and then Sean John, Rockaware, et cetera, started to follow. Was that kind of competitive landscape something that you felt like helped your brand or was this something that you weren't expecting to become so oversaturated so quickly? Because it did feel like... I guess for lack of a better term, hip hop clothing, which is like the way one would have referred to it without any real knowledge in the 90s, went from being driven by FUBU, which was like, was just getting completely enmeshed by the mainstream. And then there was brand after brand after brand. How did you take that at that time? So it was really, when you're talking about that time, it was really around 98, 99, right? And I'll tell you why, because once we got our deal and we started hitting these numbers, now, Prior to getting our deal, 
we all would collect, we were together. Like we would go to the show, the, the Magic Trade show, and we would say, we would have forums with us, with all the people you mentioned. And, and thank God I, I, I got to mention Maurice Malone and Shabazz Brothers and all these people. We would all be together and we'd all be talking about each other. And by the way, I went to the Magic Trade show. I had $27 in my pocket. And I had taken out an ad, this was around 90, 90, 93, 94. And I was, I was in there and I ran up, I saw Carl Kanai one day in the Mirage Hotel. I didn't have enough money to get to the trade show. And he said, I know who you are and I seen you in that day. I want you to come to the trade show. And he sat me at his booth and he introduced me to every single buyer that came by. He helped me, um, you know, get to that point. So we were all collectively going. So what happened is once I got that deal, then I proved or my, my friends and I, my, you know, my partner, we proved that there was a viable market. here. So now we're taking up a lot of real estate and stores. Now all of a sudden, all those guys who did were kind of pivoting besides Carl, everybody started to back them. You know, it just became like, we need to be on this. You know, the same way that today everybody's calling you about crypto, cannabis, NFT, sports car trading, like in, in one shot, everybody just started to rush. And that's when you started to see uh, the ads come out in 99. It wasn't just them. It was just, they, now they were starting to just put black people in ads and say, this is a new urban brand. So, you know, that, that's when that started to happen. And it, before that, though, was retail like, was there just like this incredibly ignorant response from retail in the beginning? Yeah. So, you know, we have, um, you know, my partners and I, it's, it's four of us and we would be on a hang tag, all four of us. And I'm not going to mention the big name stores, but they said either we're not take, take, take that picture off of there because uh, it's gang related. Or we don't want shootouts in our store, or we don't want um, all, all those people in our store shoplifting. But we just sold to the hood stores. The hood stores, we sold to them for a hot three years, primarily them. It wouldn't sell to anybody else besides Dr. J's in New York. And all of a sudden, when this thing blew up, they realized that one hood store now was 10 hood stores, taking up all of 145th Street in Harlem. And those, those buyers were losing their jobs that had turned us down. And that's when they started picking up everybody else because they, they started to lose their jobs. What was Dapper Dan's role in this whole climate in the 90s? Dapper Dan didn't have much to do with the late 90s, but he definitely it was Dapper Dan and Shirt Kings that I would say are the ones who acknowledge because Dapper Dan did all of in the early 90s for sure. He did uh, he probably in the late 90s, but. That he 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 dressed everybody. He made everybody, you know, he made everybody look fly no matter what you wanted. Dapper Dan did it. And um, I think what was the issue with Dapper Dan, not the issue, he he's couture. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid, I want to be part of hip hop. I can never afford Dapper Dan, so I want to get a Fubu piece of $70. I want to get it ready to wear. But Dapper Dan by far is you know, I would I would call the flyest guy in our world, um, because he made couture. I, you know, listen, I gotta tell you. It don't take a lot of skill to put a big fubu or a big old five on a shirt, right? But to but to but to but to have to be a, a, a an expert tailor like Dapper Dan and make you know make suits and everything else, you know, I got a lot of respect for him, as well as um um, shirt kings. It's so interesting that initially you gravitate towards the hood stores because right now I see so many parallels between Jimmy Jazz and Kith. You feel me? You know, uh, Jim, Jimmy is, is you know. That's the point, right? You know, Jimmy is kind of like the the he's not the department store, but he is. But he also looks to source the fly stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's um it's funny, though, because you said, like, how hard is it to just put FUBU on a T-shirt? 
And you can say that in 2021. And I think this a lot as it relates to Russell, to Puffy, to a lot of the people in that era where things were happening for the first time, you know, and obviously in the eighties, things also happened for the first time and the seventies that got these guys and got you to where you were. But it was at that time where things really broke out, broke out of being considered a music and became an entire way of life, entire culture across the entire globe. And fashion was such a major part of it and baggy clothings being commercialized and people talking about hip hop fashion and, you definitely were one of the pioneers on the Mount Rushmore of this. When you look now, like, is there a part of you that can't believe like just 27 or 28 years ago or 25 years ago and look at what not just hip hop, but the fashion in and around hip hop is? Yeah. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not taking away from what we did, you know, because hip hop, I mean, because FUBU today, we put a lot of, you'll see pieces from FUBU today that, yeah, there was a logo on it, but there was a lot of um, quality put in and it still lives even till today. I was just talking about his tailoring ability no, sure. um, when it comes to that. But um, yeah, listen, I look back and I, and I look at those things and I look at how amazing it has become. I mean, listen, a lot of people don't know behind the scenes, I'm the one who put Jeff Tweedy over at um, Sean John. He came to work for me. He was working on Twism out in California. He came to work for me. He came to apply to work with me. And I said, man, I'm not sure, but maybe you could help my man Puff. I, I distributed Fat Farm in, in Europe. And I, and I put a guy named Ruby over there who was, um, who was um, Russell's partner. Uh, Ruby was my underwear license. So all of us collectively helped. And when Dame Dash was coming out with Rockaware, he, he came and talked to me. Not that much, but, you know, I gave him the best advice. You know, this theory of all of us are, are against each other and things of that nature is nothing can be further from the truth. We had to hang in the same stores and the same departments right next to each other. And I had to make sure that if I got a hold of the Nike book for next year, because I had to pay a lot of money in a brown bag in an alley to some designer, but I need to make sure my Pantone colors match their burnt orange next year. I had to share that with everybody else and say, make sure that you don't make sweatshirts like that. You can make hats like that, but don't make sweatshirts that color so that we can all sit on the same, on, on, you know, in the, in the same stores and we can all live off of Nike. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, w I could imagine that um, the environment would have been competitive if someone like you hadn't also created that culture amongst themselves. Because at the time, Russell, Puff, Jay, there was probably nothing but friendly competition across the board. And the idea that someone like you was coming in and saying, look, we're all trying to get a piece of something that we never got to see that. So this is the color burnt orange. Now we're leveling the playing field. Just don't make sweatshirts. That's what I'm making. And truth be told, though, the reason why I was so open to working with them is because, first of all, Carl and I worked with me and 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 but I knew them and I knew that they were hip hop. You know, these artists that I'm talking about, all these people. On the flip side, there were many who didn't try to work with me and they would go out and, 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 and license a, a rap group or an R&B group's name. They wouldn't talk to me. I don't care. But that rap group or that R&B group, they didn't care about fashion. You know, they, they just cared about the check and there was nothing authentic. But Jay and Puff will fly way before they created, you know, the brand. So, you know, game recognizes game. You understand that somebody's fly. You work with them. You you yep. you know what I mean? Like you know that they cared about the culture. There were other though imposters who came in and I'd like, all right, whatever. And they would they would go up and, and crash, crash and burn, you know? And, and and so you ended up working with the people you know that if you don't work with them, they're gonna do it anyway. Yeah. Um, so let's work collectively. 
No, for sure. And 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 there was so much to eat at that point. I mean, it was a whole new world and um, you know, and everybody had a lane. Was there a moment that you can recall what that first like milestone moment when FUBU went somewhere to this next level where you looked at mom? Cause you know, I read that like she mortgaged the first hundred grand to start your business, yeah. then did it again. And you obviously had a lot of support from her. And in the world of entrepreneurship, it happened fairly quickly. You know, I mean, back then things in hip hop happened overnight, but it happened quickly. Um, was there kind of this like pinch yourself moment at some point when you sold a part of the company or a deal that you had done? Yeah, so there was two moments. Um, so we never sold the company. We sold China, just the area of China. But um, there's two moments. One when LL wore Fubu in the Gap ad, and they they ended up spending thirty million dollars airing a bunch of Fubu ads because he said for us, buy us on the low in the Gap ad. And they didn't have no idea what was happening because they didn't have diversity. So all those you know listening now, diversity is very beneficial in various different ways. Um, and the other time when I think um. You know, um, we finally did get into Macy's or we finally allowed Macy's to sell us as long as we, you know, we gave them a, a radius clause so they couldn't hurt any of the smaller stores. And we sat in the windows physically in Macy's for um, for nine or eight hours um, and with a microphone, people walking up to us. But, you you know, as a designer, you want to be a Macy's. But sitting in the Macy's, boy, did my ass hurt after that. But we were there <laughs> in Macy's windows for literally nine hours. That's and I think um, that was those those are two great times. But I, I, you know, listen, I got I got a million times that I have to pinch myself and say, you know, um, you know, I'm blessed, obviously. I kind of want to jump in and just talk about streetwear today. Like as for like new and up and coming designers, do you think that that is that level of importance of being in a department store still? No, I don't think that at all anymore. I think um you know, I like to say today, the the most powerful thing is being one step away from the money because you don't know how a department store anybody's going to interpret your brand. You know, I had to make a brand. I had to make a product. Maybe the maybe the buyer buys it. Maybe uh, they get it shipped in time. Maybe the kid who's thinking about girls or his college application brings it out of the stock room. Maybe they hang it in the right place the right way. And maybe somebody buys it. And I have no idea who buys it. I was six, seven steps away from the money. Today, when you're talking directly to somebody, you can understand, um, you know, why they want it, why they don't want it, what what frustrates them, why they felt like they arrived when they wore it, because they matched their sneakers, because they treated themselves at the end of the week, because they took a guy or a girl out on a date, because they look fly on Instagram. And you can dig into that and understand more of it. I don't think the department stores are needed at all. Unless the department stores are selling, unless they are, unless they're creating an experience, like there's a runway here. Whatever you buy, whatever, or all you influencers, you register your name. We got people from looking all around the globe at Macy's because obviously it's the most popular uh, clothing store in the world. And people all over the globe are going to see how you put things together. And then you walk down that runway. Other than that, unless you offer experience, there's no need to go there. Yeah. I mean, and a department store could end up going out of business by the time you finish the deal with them these days. 100%. And by the way, you know, you sell it to them at five, you know, they sell it at 10 and they don't sell it back. You know, they don't sell it. They make you guarantee margin. Your customer, yeah. you know, you sell it to them at 10, you know, and you make sure you have enough in there to, 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 to support them and keep communicating with them. It's amazing what some of these clothing lines from 25 years ago would have been able to do now that they're once removed from the money. The fact that like you and Puff and Jay could have been building it at this 
energy level like it was back then, but know that it was just direct to consumer. You had your platform to build clothing brand. Uh, oh. Totally different time. Oh, I'll forget it. If I was, if I, oh, if I started today, it'd be old. <laughs> Today's version of FUBU would be there'd be there'd be one 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 young man, one young woman in each high school and each college, and each one of them gets whatever one credit a thousand dollars worth of fubu for five hundred dollars and you know they would be the only ones available to sell it and every time they sell more and more and more they would get more more digital curriculums on financial intelligence on branding on marketing and they would have the clothes and i would create a massive massive army of people who fubu would be about creating entrepreneurship and empowering their communities and a portion obviously would go to towards charitable organizations that they love why aren't you doing it now I got 900 companies from Shark Tank. I'm busy, man. <laughs> I know you're right. I ain't man. got the energy like that no more, man. I'm old. You seem Let's like talk you have the energy, but Let's I'm, I'm, investing, I'm investing in younger, smarter kids than me, man. I ain't got time for that, brother. I feel you. So what, what, Brent, when you see today's, I mean, streetwear today is, is different because it feels like other people are telling the stories of what they're seeing. And though it's still incredible, it's a different world, but it's also like streetwear is, is, is everything, right? That's what everyone wears. You wear sweats to the club. You wear sweats on the runway. Um, this is what you were doing. You know, what do you think of the streetwear world today, the fashion world today, and what brands and companies do you even connect with or admire? You know, I got to tell you, I don't follow it that well, but I do follow the entrepreneurship idea of streetwear. I always thought the the origin of streetwear, um, just like, you know, just like any any kind of any fashion um, was always created by the streets. You know, you know, we all well, I don't know if we all know who's watching. I'm sure the people on the panel or, or both, you know, you know, listen, you know, the couture was, you know, when they would, when they would have all these great balls and all this great fashion, uh, you know, of the elite and, the, you know, uh, you know, getting together, and then it would be the it would be the porpers out in the street doing their fashion show around it. You know, bringing things out that was rags, but they they were looking fly, walking down like like there wasn't a runway. It was always us to, to the, those of the street to interpret something, and it didn't have to cost a lot. Actually, it didn't cost anything. So I, I know I'm I'm cool with whatever way that they interpret it today. But what I do like that I see is that these kids are buying kicks and stuff like that. They're wearing them once or twice. They're selling them for the three times the amount they got them from, you know, and I, and I love that ingenuity. I love the collaborations people have. And I, and I love how somebody tells a story. I don't care. You, you know, the, the beautiful thing about food was when we put it out, I would see people wear it a whole different way that I never expected. And I was like, damn, that's fly. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, you know, fashion is something you interpret the way that you want to interpret it. And it, again, it's the man and the woman that makes the clothes. It is not the clothes that make that person. Yep. Do you think that there's a void maybe for clothing lines like yours and the Carl Kanais of the world? Or has it just evolved out of that and that maybe that time could never be duplicated? I think everything's repeatable. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. I, I really don't know. And I try not to rack my, rack my brain thinking about it. You know, um, yeah. I think that, as I said about food, you know, there should be more brands and it's coming um, that create, uh, you know, the today's customer wants to know what did you do for somebody else? Yeah. That's important. And, and, I, and, and listen, I, you know, as, as we may pop on and talk about Shark Tank or not, I only learned that from my company, Bomba Socks, who every time we sell a pair of socks, they give away a pair to the homeless. And I found that, think about it like this. Nobody would know who, if we're wearing Bomba Socks right now. Our feet are covered. But why do they know? 
because today's consumer wants to tell you at the dinner table or on Zoom, when I bought this, I helped clean up the ocean. When I bought this, I stopped human trafficking. Or when yeah. I bought this, I took illegal guns off the street. And it's communication. They want to be proud about what they have right now. So, uh, listen, I'm open to anything. And I see, I'm seeing our younger generation be so creative with the things that they have today that I'm, I'm a fan of what's going on. And before we go into Shark Tank, Gianni's chomping at the bit. Where is FUBU today? So FUBU today, we, uh, we have suits. We are, we are decently, a decent size in Germany, South Africa, Philippines. Um, I think Australia a little bit. Uh, you, can go, you can go to the FUBU site uh, on uh, you know, FUBU on Instagram. We have eyewear. We have watches. We have suits. Um, our normal streetwear, of course. So the food was still out there and we're, we're, we're cranking along. But of course, you know, there's been a resurgence over the last two, two years. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we are looking for ambassadors. So, so food was doing good. I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, do I think it will return to where, where it used to be? Maybe, maybe not, you know, but, yeah. uh, you know, we, we love, we love when we see this feedback from people of all colors around the world who are wearing it, whether they just re- rediscovered it or whether they, they're discovering it for the first time. Yeah. There's definitely this kind of nostalgia, to it that I think will never end and never go away, especially for all of us that grew up in and around it. And plus you have this insane platform now. So yeah. more people know you than ever before. So you were famous within hip hop and fashion and now the entire country knows you. When you first got the um, ask for Shark Tank, what year was it? And where was your head at with an opportunity like that? Like, did you look at it at first and think that this was just not for you? It was 2007, and I um and and uh, retail was obviously suffering. You know, we're we're some of the first to feel it. You know, when when there's a recession because people stop buying a shirt. You know, they wear they wear a shirt ten more times instead of being able to pay their mortgage. And um, at that time, I already had, uh, you know, uh, we had FUBU, I had Kuji, uh, Willie Esco, Atonic, uh, Marriage to the Marvel was mine at the time, Heatherette and various other brands. And we were starting to slow down in the department store. So I wanted to do Shark Tank when they called me because I was only getting pitched clothing lines. And I was already, you know, I had I had 10 clothing lines and, you know, two, you know, eight of them were dead. Yeah. So that's why that's why I decided to go on to the show at first. And um and I, I didn't think the show was ever going to take off. And, and it started to. And were you familiar with the co-host at first? Who, who was on the panel at first? I know Mark wasn't right away, right? Mark was on the panel after the second year. There was another guy named Kevin Harrington on the panel. Um, and actually, at first, I, I decided I, I, they told me I couldn't do the show because they found out I was going to do a show for, for three, girl, three, three friends of mine who had just opened a store in California and I was going to be on a cable show three separate times, three minutes a piece. And um, I remember saying, well, I got to do the show. I'm a man of my word. And then I remember my agent calling saying, you're going to give up an ABC show with Mark Burnett for three girls that nobody will ever hear of called the Kardashians? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I will because I'm a man of my word. Um, wow. Because if you notice, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, uh, I was in charge of product integration and, and managing some aspects of the Kardashians uh, the first year. So if you ever look on the Kardashians season one, two, three, one, two, three, I was, uh, you'll see them all wearing only Kooji 
because I ran around to all my friends, all of these companies I know, and I was like, all the women will wear your product for the whole year for $75,000. And they were all like, not worth it. So I took wow. my own money and said, all right, girl, here you go. And that's why you'll see Kuji in the first three years of it. And then some of my friends now call me back like, yo, I got 75 for the girls. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I like 10 zeros <laughs> more, my friend. I can't even I can't even get them to answer a text for seventy five thousand dollars. <laughs> a response to a, one of their friends is seventy five thousand on text. That's how exactly. And then, like meeting these guys, meeting Mister Wonderful, and meeting Barbara. Did, like outside of the finished product of the show, was there kind of a little bit of like iron sharpening iron in the beginning amongst all of you guys? Did you feel like? okay, the chemistry amongst us is cool. I'm learning from him. He has no idea what I'm talking about. We could be onto something. Yeah, like, listen, it was iron sharpening iron when we first met because, of course, you don't want to be embarrassed on national television and lose a deal to somebody you don't know. Um, but then, you know, there's also the, <laughs> you don't like a deal and you'd be like, oh, no, I think that's from Mark. Mark is a great guy. You know what I mean? Because you want to get out of the deal. You know what I mean? You want to say no without <laughs> saying no. You want to be like, you know what? I got a lot of respect for Barbara. <laughs> Barbara, why don't you take that? <laughs> you know, because sometimes Mark hits me too. You know, it'll be it'll be a company of color, and and of course, listen, I respect I respect you know everybody, and 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 but I can't buy all the companies to come on of color, right? I yeah. mean, it's just reality. It's not the charity tank, and if they don't have their numbers right, I don't care, black, white, yellow, green, it's not supposed to happen because you're supposed to come back, and Mark will go. Yeah, you know, I don't know. D one said, "I'm a, I'm gonna give you a hundred thousand dollars." I'm like, "See, there you go. See, see, now you're making me look crazy." And then, and then he'll, he'll then he'll go, "Gotcha." You know, <laughs> I could talk Shark Tank forever, man. Well, let's get it. Let's ask Gianni. I know you got a handful. Let's ask some Shark Tank questions, and then we'll uh we'll let you go on your way. And then, um, but I know Shark Tank combo we could have till tomorrow. So let me let me just get into it, G. All right. Which company keeps you up at night for passing on? Scrub Daddy. Sponge. The Scrub mm. Daddy Sponge. Um, I love me some Scrub Daddy. Scrub Daddy. No, no other company keeps me up at night. The only reason that keeps me up at night is because I actually bidded on that company and lost it to Lori. Um, other than that, no other company keeps me up. Because yeah, Lori hits you with the QVC pitch, like no matter what. And a few years ago, that was like a no brainer. Now people are like, come on, man. Is that <laughs> what else exactly. you got? <laughs> Give me more. Um, what's the most successful company, like dollar for dollar, that's come out of Shark Tank? Bomba Socks. Bomba Socks. Crazy. My company. Bomba yes. Socks. That's amazing. Now, now the ring, ring, ring doorbell came out of Shark Tank, but they didn't get a deal because even Jamie, who became a guest shark once, said he was asking too much at yeah. the time. So if you're going to talk about a company that did not get a deal most successful, ring doorbell. A company that did get a deal, Bomba Socks. Do you think there's this like blurry line um, when you guys are evaluating these companies? Because a lot of times you'll ask about the valuation and base it off profit when in the world outside of consumer brands, valuation is based never on profit. And it feels like as a listener, you'll hear like, how did you get this valuation to 5 million? You're only doing X amount in revenue, but really like in anything else, in the tech space, for instance, means nothing. Is that something you guys are starting to think about as the world has changed so drastically? Or do you stay in this like 
this lane of what you guys are doing more consumer brands middle america no you know it, it just, you're you're looking at it with a certain eye there's plenty of times we give deals to people that don't have the valuation but the times that we are going hard on the valuation a couple of reasons we're looking to get out we don't like you we, we're looking for a nice way to say we're out or we really like it. We're trying to push you down a little because maybe we're not sure if you're going to run this company the right way. And the ask, it's not a twenty-five, fifty thousand dollars ask. It's a $500,000 ask. Or we're trying to sniff out, why are you asking for so much? Are you hemorrhaging? Because why would you have a $10 million, $20 million valuation? So either are there some fellow sharks behind you in Silicon Valley that's pushing you up there and you, I'm going to have the meeting with you later. You're going to have the sophisticated board with people who are way more wealthier than me and you are trying to ex exploit the platform. So there's a lot of reasons why we may do that, right? Uh, now, on the flip side, you'll see somebody go, you know, I'm asking for whatever the case is. And we'll be like, well, your numbers don't really do that. But you know what? I really like you. You know, so it all, it all depends on, on, on what we're trying to smell. Because we just remember, so everybody's clear, an average pitch is an hour long. And we have 16 cameras shooting that pitch. So we have 16 hours worth of footage to go through for people to see eight minutes of it. And we close about 80% of the deals. Uh, and it takes us up to six months to do due diligence to close these deals. You do 80% of the deals that get done on the show or 80% of what you see. No, 80% close on what you see. So at the end of the, end of the day, if I got 20 deals on the show, but we see an average of 120 people. Now, I may have 15 because I'm mixed up with sharks on five. But only 92 people will air. Now, 40,000 people applied. And what happens? We, uh, we, you know, we, we drill down on them, and then I'll probably close out of that 15, I'll close about 11 or 12. Of those deals because those will air. Uh, no, excuse me, out of the 15, excuse me, 10 will air. I'll close about eight of them, those because five hit the, hit the, you know, they hit the editing floor. And those don't exist if they don't get on air. I've, I've invested in one or two of them, but we all know that, you know, I listen, end of the day, bringing on eight companies and all of them need something different. Because I couldn't evaluate them. Some need manufacturing, some need marketing, some need some need structure, some need distribution. It's all hands on. And yeah. once that once that once that uh, horse is out of the carriage, I mean, you know, I gotta I gotta bring all this stuff up because in you know in four months, when they air, if they're not if they're not positioned to take in the amount of orders and take in the influx and all this kind of stuff, well, then now we gotta clean up a lot of stuff. So I can't be spending time on somebody who's not gonna air. Yeah. Because it's all hands on deck on this and there's no one answer to it. There's so much other thought and like details that go into Shark Tank that no one really has any idea about. The fact that 16 hours are basically getting cut into 150 minutes over 16 companies, 10 minutes or 100, right? Yeah, it's pretty minutes, incredible. Yeah. And are some people it, full of shit? Like afterwards you realize they were bullshitting you the whole time? Yeah, of course I do. You know, well, but listen, I mean, you know, end of the day, the ones who I who I feel are trying to use the platform and just get on there, they have no, they have no clue of closing the deals. However, I got to tell you, uh, eight out of ten people generally want the money, generally want to close the deal, generally want to be really great partners. Um, but again, listen, if I'm going to ask you, you know, the season one, season two, season three, we close about thirty percent of the deal because the casting agents were casting agents. They didn't yep. sit there and watch hundreds of pitches. So, you know, if somebody came with you and said, I'm doing $30 million of business and I got two employees, you'd be like, 
So where are you selling crack at? <laughs> right. You, yeah. you know the right questions to ask. But yeah. as, as you know, everybody got more sophisticated watching us just like America has. And so so the quality of the deals got much better. Yeah. And year one and two, I think uh, ABC wanted to take five percent of perpetuity of the companies. And they said, no, nah, we're not getting good deal flow because we can't have this. So they cut that out and the quality got better. The Sharks hired more people around us, a licensing person, a salesperson, a retail operation person. So everything grew to now what you see. So it operates like a venture fund in some ways, like you have people getting deal flow. and It's 100 percent cool. venture fund in, in, in a sense. If on average it takes about an hour for each pitch, in as your time of being a shark, what's the shortest? Which company had the shortest pitch that got a deal that you've seen? I did. I did a pitch this about a month ago. Company was on twelve minutes. Amazing. I, I did the deal. Uh, not much. Not much to hear. You got it. Very simple. You either in and, in or out of it. It was a very simple one. So that'll air uh, this year. And the longest pitch I ever had was two and a half hours, a company called Plate Topper. I got so pissed off at the guy that I, I had said no about 45 minutes in that he kept pitching me again. I got so pissed off, I get off the set, I walk to go get something to eat. And they're pissed off at me and, I, and they tell me to come back and you'll look at the last edit. There's a chewed up apple on the end of my desk because uh, uh, you know I, I went and got an apple. I was so <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> It's incredible. Um, all right, two questions and I'll let you go. I, I watch it with my kids. My kids are 12 and eight, and I've noticed that children in general have really connected with Shark Tank. And it's amazing because while the entertainment, I think at first is what connected with young kids, just um, the products were things that they could wrap their head around. There has become an education to this, like the fact that my kids can so fluently listen to you guys speak about percentages of a deal and landing costs and all the same things that you know you would learn in business school that people are listening did you start to realize that somewhere through this like we have this real i mean this is a smash this is a generational television smash the reason mark cuban so when it first started mark came on as a guest no big so-called millionaires and billionaires that are, that are on as guest sharks now sometimes none of them wanted to do the show they said, and we're not getting on to a show that we don't know. Nobody knows a Damon John. I mean, I was known in FUBU. Barbara Corcoran was known as a woman in New York. Nobody knew Kevin O'Leary and, and Robert. They're from Canada. And, and all the fly guys was like, I'm not getting on there. I'm, I need a show by myself. Mark Cuban did his, uh, he, 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 he did a study on the show and he realized it was the top show. One of the top shows watch kids five to 15 on network and watch parents and kids together. And Mark, we were going to be canceled the first three years because nobody knew the show. Mark said, if this is going to help America because this is going to help my children, I'm going to get on the show. And I don't care who else is on the show because Mark Cuban's a pop culture icon. He's bigger than life way before the show. And because he went on there and was able to go on Jimmy Kimmel and all those talk shows and promote it, the show was on the air. It stayed on the air because of Mark Cuban, because he realized that being a tech guy, he did his he did his, uh, you know, he, he did his his, his study. And he, and he realized that this is a show that families go watch together. And he always will say, listen, and I'll say it, too, that, you know, the, the next Mark Cuban or the next Steve Jobs or Oprah Winfrey or is, is, is in their little pajamas, in their onesies, eating some damn Fruit Loops and watching that show. And they're going to get up there and they're going to change the entire world. And I think that that's the that's one of the main reasons we, we love this show. It is a family show. And it, it, it the next the next the next person is going to change the world is watching that show. So your legacy, which is tough to ask somebody who's like, you know, young still. 
but you had something that, like I said in the beginning, impacted so many, an entire generation. Not many people get one of those. And now Shark Tank is something that I think, like you said, from a notoriety standpoint, you're probably recognized now more than ever. If you have to choose one, though, and I spoke about this with KD the other day. He was saying to me, you know, I don't care if people, at the end of the day, refer to me as a basketball player. Because what comes with that now is so much more. And I know what more I bring to the table. But I set out to be the best I could be at this. I'm cool holding that with me. Is FUBU that for you still? Or has Shark Tank, you think, taken that over? FUBU 10,000 times over Shark Tank. Because it was something that I created with nothing. It was something that I, I that I I, I got uh, got to be known as a global brand, and I created out of my basement. And I think that Shark Tank shows that I, I love the fact that Shark Tank shows that uh, somebody like me who uh, got left back, who's dyslexic, had no money. Uh, you can make it no matter what color, creed, or sexual preference you are if you stand on that carpet. But I got to that level after I created something that my partners and I created just from a dream and I failed so many times. But before I got to Shark Tank, I can't tell you how many people walked up to me and said, before I saw FUBU, I didn't realize that I can create my and, and start my own business and own a bakery or own a, a corner store. And um, it came out of a love for growing up, you know, in hip hop and my love for fashion. So uh, I am very, very honored at, 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 um, at, um, Shark Tank, but Shark Tank wouldn't be here for me if my baby, Afubu, and my four partners, my three partners, didn't, you know, wasn't created. Yeah. And the name For Us, By Us, I think will go down in history. And I think it's like a rallying cry, like you said, for a lot of. Uh, it's a rally cry. It's the, first it's the first hashtag of, uh, of clothing, but many cultures and many other genres are taking For Us, By Us for themselves. Thank God. Empower yourselves. You know, be proud of what you have and, and, and circle yourself with other people that feel the same joy or feel the same pain. And 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 uh, and I think for us, bias, please take it, run with it, um, you know, and create that as your rally cry. I can't thank you enough. Um, this was incredible. Um, I'm sure you got another trick up your sleeve, but if not, what you're doing right now is changing so many lives. I think it's incredible that the companies that you guys see at Shark Tank, I'm starting to see now on the invent, on the venture side, the investment side, and that the what you've built has really just like catapulted this whole world of investing as well, which I think is amazing. And learned a lot. Appreciate uh, your time and your influence and um, pleasure watching you, man. You got it, brother. So that's a wrap. Another good combo. We took it out of the office today with Mr. Damon John. Really, really cool to catch up with him, man. Love Shark Tank. Love his entire career. Really like, he left a mark. And to me, when I look at successful businessmen and women, more than the money, more than any of that stuff, it's like when it's all said and done, did you leave your mark? And that man left his mark in the history books. FUBU will forever be recognized as a, innovative transcendent business and it was an incredible pleasure to talk to him i know what i'm doing now i'm logging on to the computer weed maps time see what's in store for the evening can't lie but thank you to olivia jade for joining the pod thanks as always to my man gianni harrell www.weedmaps.com got to find the right strain i'm outie see you next week y'all